This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was a night that was supposed to mark the beginning of a fresh start for this couple. However, it soon became the beginning of an experience so terrible even the police would find it hard to believe. This is the Denise Huskins story. Amy, how was your birthday trip? Um, I had two birthday trips. I was really lucky this year, actually. Uh, James took me to the beach for three days, which was fabulous. And we got to take our dog. And my friend Michelle took me to a lake for a couple of days. And that was fun, too. Sounds perfect. What did your friend Amy do? Yeah, my friend Amy <laughs> came over today uh, with a big bag of all my favorite gifts, including Diet Coke, Prosecco, my favorite popcorn, and all my favorite keto snacks. And we're celebrating tonight, so I'm excited. Yay. All right. Thank you, Amy. For help with today's episode, I'd like to thank Abigail Perez. Oh, lovely. Thank you, Abigail. Yes. Megan, you definitely know the Denise Huskins story, huh? I sure do. Yes. You remember what episode we mentioned it in? When we talked about Sherry Papini. Yep. Which blows my mind still. No update there. But we are going to talk about a case today that I think is one of the most mind-blowing cases. I know we say that often, Megan, but... Well, we don't say it all the time, but also I think the Sherry Papini case got you even more interested in covering this case. Absolutely. That's... I To tell you the truth, I hadn't heard about this case until that case, so... I knew of it, but not not as well, so... And today's a little special because after the episode, we will be speaking to Denise herself and her husband, Aaron Quinn, who are the co-authors of a book called Victim F, From Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors. And they wrote this along with Nicole Wisensee Egan. I know. And this book, I mean, I'm just going to say it right now, Victim F, blew my mind. And I read it in 24 hours. I couldn't put it down. I can't wait to talk to them. Yeah, because it's stranger than fiction, this story. It is, but they're also, they're really poignant writers and their points of view are, I mean, just, it it will grab you. I suggest everyone get this book immediately. And I think once people hear the interview, we probably don't need to tell them they're going to run and get it anyway. I think you're right, yeah. So let's get into the story, Megan. We might not go into as much detail in some areas because we will be talking to Denise and Aaron afterwards. Yeah, and I think it'll be nice to hear from some of them um, on some of the issues that are involved in this case. Yes. So let's start with a little background on who is Denise. Well, Denise, in the summer of 2014, she moved to Vallejo, California. You know where Vallejo is, right? Sort of. Okay, so it's north of Oakland in the San Francisco Bay Area, a beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah, I did know that. Sorry. So she moved there to complete a physical therapy residency. Now, she was working at Kaiser Hospital, which is known to have one of the best specialized programs for patients with neurological disorders. So that's what Denise was doing. And it was there that she met Aaron Quinn, who was also a physical therapist in the same department. Denise says she was initially drawn to his intelligence. They're both clearly very intelligent. Um, to be part of this program. Now, Aaron had been living in Vallejo since 2010, and he had recently broken up with his fiance. In fact, his fiance had just recently moved out that that same summer that he met Denise, his fiance had moved out. Denise and Aaron would run into each other at work social situations, and they always found themselves in deep conversations, eventually end up dating. 
But things were not really that smooth because Aaron was processing what had happened with his ex-fiance and that would cause strain in his relationship with Denise. So they would take breaks quite often. But regardless, they decided they want to try and make things work, even though Denise was suspecting that Aaron might still have feelings for his ex-fiance. I remember that Aaron said that, you know, this was a little bit complicated. But I also remember that Aaron and Denise both said they were very drawn to each other, like they had a very strong connection. I just think that Aaron, you know, he was just processing this long term relationship in a way that, you know, probably most healthy people kind of do when they get out of these relationships. And unfortunately, though, seven months into the relationship with Denise, she found out that he had been speaking to his ex behind her back and lying to her about it. So they really struggled with this. For weeks, they were going back and forth, not sure what they should do. But on March 22nd, 2015, Denise decided that she would go over to Aaron's house so they could finally talk things over. Really, it was Aaron trying to convince Denise that he only wanted to be with her. And Denise felt really strongly for Aaron, and she wanted to work things out as well. So that evening of March 22nd, 2015, Denise brought a pizza over to Aaron's home and they spent most of the night speaking about how to build trust in their relationship. And Aaron would just spend so much time apologizing profusely and explaining that he was now in therapy and he really wanted to work things out. And Denise says she forgave him and said, you know, they'll move forward, but she might want to take things slow. She says the two cried. They held each other. They talked about their future It was around midnight when they both finally went to sleep and they're both very happy. You know, they're moving forward. Things are going good. But around 3 a.m., Denise was awoken to the words that she would never forget. Wake up. This is a robbery. As you could imagine, Denise just assumes this is a bad dream, as anyone would. However, it didn't take her long to realize that there was actually a stranger standing above her, shining a bright light into her face. She also noticed red dots projected and moving on the walls, kind of like those laser um, Mm -hmm. pointers that you see. The voice told the two to lie face down and told them several times that they are not there to hurt them. Denise followed the instructions while Aaron stayed still. It was not until the person called Aaron's name and repeated the instructions that he moved. So basically, I think Aaron was in shock. He was kind of frozen. And then they said his name and he realized they know his name. It's all terrifying, but also the realization, oh, they know who I actually am. So this is like planned. Yeah, exactly. So they were terrified, obviously confused. The couple were zip tied at their wrists and their ankles. Actually, Denise was told to tie up Aaron and then the intruders tied her up. Oddly, one of the men kept praising Denise, telling her what a good job she was doing throughout this. Now, this was a group of intruders. Not sure exactly how many, just that we know that they were outnumbered. So there were three, possibly more. And all of these people that they believe were men were all wearing wetsuits. That is extremely bizarre. But I I guess it was to, you know, remove any possibility of leaving any type of bodily evidence behind fingerprints, hair, anything. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. The two were then blindfolded using blacked out goggles and headphones were placed on their ears. Now, Denise says the person doing this was very gentle with her, which just seems almost extra disturbing or eerie in some way. Mm -hmm. It's nice that they were being gentle with her. But, you know, like I said, they kept praising her for doing a good job and making sure that, you know, her hair didn't get stuck in the goggles and just, you know, really being considerate. It just seems paradoxical because somebody's breaking into your home and they care enough about whether your hair is getting pulled. Or maybe they wanted to appear that they care enough to Mm -hmm. soothe you, to facilitate cooperation, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, the two are inside a closet and they're listening to a pre-recorded message that the assailants had created. At first, it was just calming music. And then a voice said, stay calm. We aren't here to hurt you. This is purely financial and it will be over soon. This is not your fault. 
Okay. Now, the creepiest part of all, the recording goes on to say, a medical professional will be in shortly to check your vitals. You will be given a sedative, and if you don't take it orally, it will be injected. A medical professional. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's a, that's an odd detail to um, right? put in. Yeah, Some of this is very just odd. Yeah. yeah. And sure enough, somebody came in and took their blood pressure and asked them about medical history and allergies. You know, I don't even remember that part. Wow. Yeah. As if they were like at a doctor's office. Now, another recording comes on the headphones telling Denise and Aaron that they will need to provide their passwords and personal information And they are further informed that if they lie, then the other one would be shocked and or cut. Shocked? Yeah. Then they move Denise to a different room in the house. And once again, she is asked if she is comfortable. And when she says she is cold, um, the assailant gets her a blanket. Meanwhile, the recording on Aaron's headphones are reciting personal information, such as where he grew up. And I believe this was a way to show that they knew where his family lived, a way to intimidate him. He was also visited by one of the intruders who he had to give all his information to. They also asked about who Denise was and whether or not she resembled his ex-fiance. Right, because the ex-fiance was probably the original target. Yep. Yeah. So, Or at least they, we think that that's possible. The intruders told Denise that she was not the intended target and that they, in fact, were there for Aaron's ex-fiance whose name to this day has never been published. So it seems that there was a point where the intruders are like trying to figure out what to do because this wasn't the plan. Apparently, Denise was not the target, so they don't know if they should continue um, what they were doing or if they should call the whole thing off. After conversing amongst themselves, the intruders, they told Denise that she is going to be kidnapped for 48 hours and that she would not be released until Aaron completes some tasks. Jace, I don't know at this point what uh, what I would be thinking. You know, what I find odd about the um, ex-fiance possibly being the target here is that I know even I know Aaron, she and Aaron had spoken via text and I knew they worked together, but she wasn't coming around the house and they had broken up seven months before. So that's a very long time in between. Because they were, as we'll come to find out, it does seem like they were surveilling the house. Exactly. So wouldn't they have but some apparently intel- Denise and the ex-fiance looked similar on some accounts, some accounts say, no, not at all. They both had blonde hair, but very different builds. So it's it's hard to really know. Okay. After telling Denise that they would be taking her, they allowed her to gather her belongings and to use the bathroom privately. So again, they're being somewhat gentle with her considering the situation. But after they do this, they place her in the trunk of Aaron's car. But they did line it with a comforter. So again, it's more gentle than you would expect people to be in this situation. Either for, you know, because they want to ensure cooperation um, and, you know, make sure that there's no resistance or because they view themselves as really, you know, maybe they're doing this one act, but they view themselves as good people still. So they're, you know, they're trying to preserve that feelings of I'm not a bad person. Neutralization theory. (laughs) It is neutralization (laughs) theory, which may or may not come up later. But Uh, yeah, we'll have to see. The intruders also told Aaron that they would be taking Denise and that she was not the intended target. But as a way to make money, at this point, he would have to pay to get her back. He got very specific instructions from the recording. He was told, do not go to the police. There was a camera set up in the home to make sure. Do not change the temperature in the house. Stay inside. Again, cameras everywhere. They will find you if you leave. Uh, They also told him he could go to the bathroom. And if you alert anyone, then we will kill Denise. They also instructed Aaron to call out of work for the next day for both him and Denise and to keep his phone nearby as they would be communicating with him. 
Before leaving the home, they moved him to the living room couch and they told him to stay there until morning. They also left him scissors to free himself and the two phones on the counter. So we're going to do this a little different. We're going to talk about what happened from Aaron's point of view, and then we'll go into Denise's point of view, because at this point, they're separated. So they're, they have very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Aaron says he ended up falling asleep because of the sedatives, and he woke up around 5 a.m. in a drug-induced haze. And this is when he noticed red tape on the floor around him and cameras pointing at him. He did as he was told, which is basically cut himself loose and then called in sick for both him and Denise. He says he fell in and out of sleep for the next several hours. The kidnappers texted and emailed him as they promised. The first communication he received told him that Denise was fine and also gave him instructions on how to obtain money. Basically, they said, take 8500 from two different accounts so that it doesn't raise suspicion at the bank. Aaron then called the bank and the credit card company to inquire about getting a cash advance. He wrote the kidnappers, letting them know that he could not actually obtain the money that day. They actually wanted it by that evening or the next morning, but the bank and credit card company told him it couldn't happen that quickly. So Aaron's panicking at this point. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to call 911 because he's afraid they're going to hurt Denise. So he decides to call his brother, Ethan, because Ethan is an FBI agent and he thinks Ethan will know what to do. Well, Ethan tells him to call 911. So that's what he does. He calls 911 reluctantly. It's a hard decision to make. Very hard. And we are going to ask Aaron about how hard this decision, in fact, was for him. The police arrive to a really puzzling scene. Again, this red tape is on the floor. There's cameras. There's a clearly drugged Aaron who also admits to the police, yes, I am on drugs. There were beer and like some alcohol glasses in the sink. Um, They asked Aaron so many questions. They were not treating this house like a crime scene. They did not have gloves. They searched the house. They took Aaron to the station. They wanted to get a statement. They also wanted to get a blood sample. So it seems like initially the police are thinking something seems strange here. And I don't blame them. It seems like a puzzling scene to walk into. Sure. Now at the station, Aaron was put into a small windowless room. Really what we know is a typical interrogation room, which, Megan, is no way to treat a victim or a witness. Well, that's because they didn't think he was a victim or a witness. You're absolutely right. You know what else they made him do? They made him wear the jail clothes. Exactly. And that's also um, just a demoralizing experience and framing him. For anyone to see that video later, it looks like he's a suspect. Yep. And they, you know, they took pictures of him. You know, to me, it seemed like he was under arrest. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like he was free to leave. It did not seem that way to me. So over the course of hours, they asked Aaron to recount the events You saw your typical good cop, bad cop. They were saying things like, the truth will set you free. We're not buying your story. It didn't happen like that. You didn't plan this. Something happened. You know, and the typical, you know, we found blood in the house. I know you killed her. All of these interrogation tactics that we see. And Megan, you can see part of the interrogation on 2020. Did you see that in 2020? I did, yeah. We, did you see it with me? Yeah, okay. we watched it together. <laughs> That's right. Yes, okay. <laughs> with Alan and James, actually, remember? Yes, yeah. James was not there. You're right. It was just me, you, you and Alan. We missed you, James. And he's hysterical. This poor guy. Like, it was hard to watch. Terrible to watch. Brutal. So they gave him, they also gave him a lie detector test. And he is so sleep deprived. At this point, it's been more than 12 hours since he called 911. And of course, they quickly tell him he failed. Whether or not he failed, you know, who knows? Well, you don't know because the police can lie to you. Even though you can't lie to the police, the police can lie to you. There was another round of brutal interrogations. And now this is done by some FBI investigators who come in. At this point, Aaron realizes, you know what? It's probably time to get a lawyer. And his brother helped him retain a local attorney. Can you imagine the frustration? 
Remember, the intruders told him that they were going to hurt the niece if he didn't comply. And here they are hours later, and the police are not even trying to find Denise. The only thing they are doing is they're searching Aaron's home with canines. Yeah, because they think that Aaron killed Denise and it happened in the home. So they are treating it like a crime scene, but yep. they're treating it like a crime scene in which Aaron killed Denise. Now yep. he's coming in with the story and tunnel vision at its finest because they are wasting really valuable time. As we know, if somebody is taken, the most crucial time is, you know, the first 24. First 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even usually a smaller time frame than that. But 24 hours is really critical. Yeah. So so much time is being wasted. And remember, they told Aaron they would communicate with him via his cell phone. Well, guess what? The police took his phone and they put it on airplane mode. And I have heard about police turning off the cell phone so that they can't be tampered with remotely. Either way, I think they should have kept the phone on just to see if what he was saying was true and someone was trying to contact him. Finally, it's now the evening on March 24th and the police are starting to take things a little more serious because... There was a proof of life recording that the kidnappers had sent to a local media outlet. So now the police are thinking, okay, maybe something is going on here. And they actually have the hostage negotiation team on site. And this is when Aaron gets his phone back, realizes it was on airplane mode, turns on his phone to see that he had missed several messages from the kidnappers. So frustrating. So frustrating. So now what's going on with Denise? Remember, Denise is in the trunk of Aaron's car. And she is in and out of consciousness because, remember, she was also given sedatives. Yes. At some point, the car stopped and her kidnapper cut off her zip ties to make her more comfortable and moved her to a different car trunk. So remember, they were in Aaron's car and now they're moving her to a different car. Now, when the, fu- when the car finally stops, she's not sure how long she was in the trunk for, but it was definitely hours. She was taken out of the trunk and laid on the ground while her kidnapper goes inside to clean up a house. So basically, he says, you stay here. I need to clean up a little. And remember in the book, Denise says, like, I, you know, I'm thinking he's cleaning up after his last victim. Like, this must be like, I couldn't imagine that feeling. The man came out and told her she could use the bathroom and he helps her walk. She was allowed to shower alone. And she was told, you know, just keep your goggles on. Then she was taken to a bedroom and she was told that this is where she would be staying. Denise was told that she was going to be set free once Aaron complied with their demands. The man also explained to her that he was part of an organization that was hired to fulfill personal debts, and each member of the group had a different job, and this was his job within the group. It seems odd that he's giving this much information, and it seems like a a cover story. Well, he tells her even more, because he goes on to tell her that he has been trained, and he had been preparing thoroughly for the kidnapping, and that him and the others are all military trained. And again, he tells her she was not the intended target. And he goes on to tell her that this group had been watching her and Aaron for the last six months. Now, at the end of the first day of captivity, Denise was feeling grateful for the fact that no one had hurt her. In fact, remember, they were treating her kind of kindly. They were letting her have privacy to take a shower. And that's not what you would expect. Unfortunately, things changed for her when the man entered the room telling her that he would have to have sex with her so that they would have something on her to keep her quiet. So they told her they would be videotaping the assault and that she would need to look as if the act was consensual. Uh, This is, I don't know what I mean to say here, but this is obviously where she must have that panic must have really started to set in for her. And before the assault, he actually, you know, was hanging out with her. He wanted to get to know her. He was asking her questions, telling her how he suffers from PTSD after being in the military. 
I'm pretty sure he offered her wine. Like he was really trying to make it like as if this was a consensual. Well, I was just going to say he's trying to normalize the assault by making that this is a, a tactic that some assailants will use. He's mm. trying to make it as if though I'm not assaulting you. We've established a relationship. <laughs> this is just something we have to do together. It's disgusting. Can you imagine how Denise must be? I, I can't even imagine. how. Well, she I mean, be. well, we're going to talk to Denise okay. about how she felt. So it's we true. will find out exactly how she felt. That is true. After the attack, Denise was told to shower and she was told that she was allowed to remove the goggles while she was alone in the bathroom. She was also provided toiletries and a clean towel. So she explains it almost as if like being in a hotel, there were like little travel toiletries and a towel waiting for her. Like this is all very strange. She was then given food and some more sedatives. Now, the next day is when she was asked to record a proof of life. This is the recording that was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle along with an email stating that she would be returned safely, which gave her loved ones hope. And everyone really felt like not only that, it gave the police, it finally made the police change and think maybe Aaron is telling some of the truth. Denise was then sexually assaulted again after being told that the last recording didn't look believable enough. Again, they told her it needed to look like it was consensual and that the two were having an affair. She was told that she needed to kiss her assailant and participate in the act. At one point, her captor let her read a news story about her kidnapping and comforts her when she breaks down crying. That evening after dinner and some wine, she got another sedative and went to sleep. So again, he's acting as if, uh, how did you explain it before? He's he's normalizing, normalizing the assault. It, by yeah. He's acting as if though they're in a relationship and he's normalizing or minimizing his culpability or mm -hmm. his blame. He's really a good guy because... You know, he's giving her this comfort and he's establishing a rapport. Mm -hmm. And this is the same person, too. This is the person she refers to as the voice in her book a lot. So this Correct. is, you know, even though there were multiple assailants at one point, she's with this one who she refers to as the voice yeah. constantly. That's a good point. Yes, that's exactly what she does. And I think it's because I don't know if they ever explain why she says that, but I guess it's, she never got to see him. That's exactly why yeah. she didn't see him. She he only was just knew the him voice. the voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So remember I said she was given another sedative and went to sleep. Some hours later, she was awoken by the voice, by her captor, telling her, quote, it's time. At this point, he put her in the passenger seat of the car, and they took a long drive to Southern California, where he says he would be dropping her in Huntington Beach. Now, that's where her parents live and where she grew up. She is told that she cannot say anything about his military experience or the sexual assault. So he says, basically, you know, it's, I understand you're going to go to the police. That's fine. You know, just don't say these two things. And he knows her address. He knows where her parents live. She's going to listen to this, I think. Before leaving, he tells her that her strength is admirable and he regrets not meeting her under different circumstances and that she was an incredible person. Yet another thing that must have made her feel sick. Sick, yeah. So she followed the instructions given, which were to get out of the car, count till 10 before taking off the tape that was over her eyes. She does just that and she looks around and she is filled with relief when she sees that she is only a block away from where her mother lives. Because remember, her eyes were taped the whole time. Even though he said, I'm going to be bringing you to oh. Huntington Beach, she had no reason to believe this was actually going to happen. I would have thought he was bringing me somewhere to kill me. And that's exactly what she thought. Right. To her dismay, however, her mother was not home. She then went to her father's house, which was nearby, but he wasn't home either because they were both in Vallejo helping with the search. Luckily, she saw a neighbor who took her in and called 911. At this point, Denise believes the worst days are behind her because she survived this attack. She could not have imagined how much worse things would become for both herself and Aaron. The police arrive, and from the moment they arrive, they seem suspicious of Denise. 
They thought Denise seemed much calmer than she should have been, and she looked better than they would have expected. She also had her personal belongings with her as well. So the police are saying, okay, this doesn't look like someone who has been kidnapped and, you know, dropped off. But, you know, even when it did look like, remember, just going back to Sherry Papini really mm-hmm. quick, even when she did look like That's she did. That's true. <laughs> you know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So we can't judge by appearance and affect. That's a good point because she was the opposite. Remember, she was like beaten up and, you know, she looked all, you know, bloody on the side of the road and they thought that was suspicious. Jeez. She told the police that the shoes she was wearing were given to her by her captor and also that he had given her a water bottle. However, they did not take those into evidence. They took some photos of her. She just kept telling them that she wanted to call her family. That's all she wanted. And they just kept holding her there because they were waiting for the lead detective to arrive. Luckily, they did allow her aunt and cousin, cousin who had recently passed the bar exam, in to see her. And she was allowed to leave with them. Very quickly, the family retained an attorney and informed Denise early on that the police did not believe her story and that the lead detective thought that Aaron and Denise were in on this hoax together because their stories matched perfectly. Oh, wow. What a coincidence when that's the exact events. I mean, the stories match perfectly because they're both telling the truth. Now, this, to me, was one of the most shocking. Did you see this press conference that the Vallejo Police Department had that evening? Could not believe it. Could not believe it. They actually said, from this point forward, Mr. Quinn and Miss Huskins will no longer be referred to as victims or witnesses. Quote, they plundered valuable resources and owe the community an apology. This was, quote, a wild goose chase. This was only hours after they had done no investigation whatsoever. None. This is... It's not incompetence, actually. It's malicious, I is what totally I would agree. say. This is, this is way worse. So with this statement, as you can imagine, their credibility and reputations were shattered. They lived the next few weeks in fear, number one, knowing that their attackers were still at large because the police didn't believe them and were not investigating, but also receiving awful emails and Facebook posts calling them awful names, especially Denise. People were calling her pathetic, calling her a liar, and a lot more awful things that I don't even want to repeat. Like Aaron had just a few days prior, Denise was brought in for questioning. It was clear that not only were the police not believing her, they were actually re-victimizing her by the aggressive interrogation-style questions that they were asking. Again, it was the good cop, the bad cop, and this is someone who's been traumatized by this event, and now the police are acting like this. It was around this time, however, that another email was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle from the kidnapper. Now, the kidnapper is taking blame for the crime and it was expressing frustration that the police were still suspecting Aaron and Denise of orchestrating the whole thing. Now, what do you think of this? Do you think the kidnapper is pissed because he wants credit or do you think he feels bad for them? You know, I thought about this a, a little bit and I think it's it might be just um, a little bit of both. I think he feels felt, again, bad for what he did to Denise and wanted to normalize it and wanted to, you know, he probably felt in some ways, you know, bad for her when he saw her being, you know, blamed and victimized. I think he wanted to try to help her. He still sees himself, again, neutralization, still sees himself as a decent guy neutralizing his own um, guilt and culpability. Do you think he was, do you think he also wanted, you know, some offenders want the notoriety of it? Do you think he was like pissed that, that he was not getting credit for it? I think in that's certainly way? a possibility. I, I, I'm not sure, but I think that's a possibility as well. Right. There was finally a break in the case in June 2015, about three months after that press conference. 
there was a discovery made that would help Denise and Aaron find the much needed justice that they had been waiting for. During those three months, they kept a very low profile. They did stay together. They were very much together and stronger than ever. They tried to, of course, avoid the media. Aaron had to sell his house. They moved into an apartment together in a different town. They were not working um, partially because of dealing with the effects of what they went through, but also there were some issues with their employer taking them back. They were traveling all over. They had to stay with family and they had to keep a low profile because they were labeled as these hoaxers. And when they were seen in public, I think even this was in the book, people would, you know, point and say nasty things. So they really had to keep a low profile somehow without having a place to live or any of their belongings. And I think that's one of the reasons they didn't return to work because remember they worked for this really well-known program that I think didn't want to be involved in all of this, which I can understand, but it made things really hard for the couple. So what is this break in the case? In Alameda County, which is just 40 miles away, there was a failed home invasion that led to the discovery of evidence that was linked to Denise's kidnapping. In this situation, a masked intruder broke into a home where a couple and their daughter were asleep. Now the husband got into a scuffle with the intruder and the intruder ended up fleeing. However, he left something at the scene. Megan, he left his cell phone. That's right, he did. So what did the cell phone do? The cell phone led police to his door in South Lake Tahoe. So the police were led to the home of 44-year-old Matthew Muller who was a former Marine and a Harvard-educated immigration lawyer. Not the profile that you probably would have suspected. And by the way, I remember he left, he didn't leave the cell phone accidentally. He just didn't anticipate that the uh, male in the Mm -hmm. household was going to fight back. And he did. And in the scuffle, the phone dropped and he fled. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's a very interesting turn of events here. The police go there. They search Mueller's home and they describe this home as, quote, an absolute wreck. And they found a lot of strange items. They found a box filled with license plates. They found a key maker, um, which helps make keys for certain models of certain cars. They found a stun gun. They also found a big tub of Vaseline and a penis pump, but no need to get into that. Um, In the trunk of Mueller's car, they found a blow-up doll. They found Nerf guns painted black with laser pointers attached. They found duct tape, zip ties, swim goggles with blacked out lenses. Does this sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. Yep. And one of them had a long blonde hair attached to it. Most importantly, however, was the discovery of a laptop computer, which would later be traced to Aaron. And also on it would be an explicit video of Muller and Huskins. Wow. Yes, Denise and Aaron were informed of the arrest, and while they felt some sense of relief, the information was not made public, so their names were still not clear. Because, you know, when they're still investigating, they don't um, let the public know exactly what's going on Right. There's reasons for that, but I don't blame them for wanting to shout it from the rooftops. Of course, yep. Furthermore, they also knew that there were more assailants who were free. Remember, they said they were a group of intruders, so for them... Yes, it's great that they may have gotten the mastermind or the actual kidnapper of Denise, but what about the other people who were out there? And they were so frustrated because the police ignored all the information they gave that could have led them to Mueller sooner. Now, luckily, this home invasion didn't end in anyone getting too hurt, but that's still traumatizing for a family that they did not have to go through that because if they would have listened to Denise and Aaron, then Mueller would have never been on the street to do that. And if you read their book, you're going to see some very simple steps they actually could have taken if they had just opened their eyes a little bit. Yep. They had the opportunity to read the affidavit, which stated probable cause for the arrest of Mueller, and they were shocked at the discrepancies and the outright lies. In other words, it seemed that the Vallejo Police Department were clearly trying to cover themselves. 
and they were trying to distance themselves from any wrongdoing during the investigation. And this pissed them off because they were there and they said, no, that's not true because we were suspects and they didn't do that and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Of course, it's CYA time. Cover your ass. So when Matthew Mueller was arrested, this was now July 2015, and the initial charges were kidnapping, rape, burglary, and false imprisonment. Now, these were the state charges, and he pled not guilty to all of them. Mm -hmm. He used to be an attorney. Remember I mentioned he was an attorney? He was actually disbarred. Although he was disbarred, he was still able to represent himself because we know that you don't need to be a lawyer to represent yourself in the court of law. From early on, they had this narrative that he had mental illness and it seemed like he was setting things up for an insanity defense. He pleaded no contest to the other charges for that home invasion and he got 10 years. And so by no contest, it just means that he is not admitting guilt, but he won't contest the charges. You know, he's admitting they have enough on him, but he will not actually accept guilt. Also known as an Alfred plea. Alfred plea is the same. Okay. An Alfred plea is when people um, take, they say, they acknowledge that there's enough evidence against them. So yeah, that But they would don't be, admit guilt. So. No, yeah. neither one of those involves admitting actual guilt. You see a lot of innocent people do Alfred pleas when they just know that the cards are stacked too much against them. Absolutely. Yeah. In September 2016, Mueller accepted a plea for the federal kidnapping charges. So he pled guilty to one count of federal kidnapping and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He told the court that he was the only one who had abducted Denise and that there were never any other people involved. Now, this is strange because Denise and Aaron both said multiple times that there was a group of at least three other assailants with her in the house. So I don't know if he's just trying to cover for you know, other people or, you know, what was going on. But. Well, I know in the end, the police still said that it was that even after that, they said Denise and Aaron are wrong. It was just Matthew Muller. Mm -hmm. um, but the way Denise and Aaron describe it in the book is at least that they saw multiple legs and heard multiple yep. voices. And at I different, believe them. I believe There's them. There's no reason not to. Absolutely. So if you recall, that was the federal charges, the federal kidnapping where he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. However, there were still those state charges. So for the state charges, he was found mentally incompetent to stand trial after being diagnosed as manic, depressive, and having bipolar disorder. So he's currently serving time in a jail-based competency treatment program, which basically just means when he's restored to competency, then the trial can commence. Well, let's, let's talk about what's going on with Denise and Aaron. So we know that Mueller is, you know, doing his time, but unfortunately, it's not that easy for Denise and Aaron to just move on from this. In March 2016, about a year after the kidnapping, they filed a defamation lawsuit against the Vallejo Police Department, who, remember, publicly called their case a wild goose chase. This press statement led media outlets to attack the two, especially Denise, comparing her to the main character of Gone Girl. You saw Gone Girl, right? Of course I did. And I remember the Gone Girl that kept... Ugh, Nancy Grace. Do you remember the Nancy Grace, one, her whole thing, like the real life Gone Girl? I sure do. And again, remember they were the couple was attacked on social media. Things were not good for them. Their lawsuit claimed that because the Vallejo Police Department alleged that the kidnap was orchestrated, their reputations were destroyed and they had been forced to move out of town where they both worked. The two won their suit. It was settled, though the couple would have actually preferred a trial because a trial would have been able to actually out all the actors here. But the city of Vallejo agreed to pay the couple $2.5 for the damages that the department had caused them for the poor handling of their case. So it's annoying. They got the money, but it's not all about the money. And Denise and Aaron, I think, really wanted to expose it because it wasn't poor handling. It was malicious. It was victim blaming. It was all these I agree. awful things. 
You ever see the movie A Civil Action with John Travolta Mm-mm. based on a true story on the PS&G scandal where they dumped all the, the, the oil or all the chemicals in the water and all the kids and families got no. sick? Well, you know, the families always wanted an apology. And the lead attorney said, money is their way of apologizing. Mm. That's the only apology you're going to get. And it's like, nope. I understand that what they wanted was a real apology. A, pu- and well, a, real, a public apology. Yeah. And a real acknowledgement yeah. of wrongdoing. Yep. And the Vallejo Police Department did issue an apology email to the couple. But that was years later. And it was sent to ABC7 News. It was like, it was as just I, for a show. As I remember, it was a crummy one, too. It sure wasn't was. great. Yep. On December, let's end on a happy note here, Megan. On September 29th, 2018, despite all of the trauma they had faced, the couple was married by their lawyer, Doug Rappaport, who they are now very close family friends with. After the two got married, they decided they wanted to start a new life. They were working again as physical therapists. They had a child. Um, They are now living happily with their 14-month-old daughter, Olivia, who was actually born five years to the day that Denise was released from captivity. That's right. And, you know, Megan, that's going to bring us to now when on June 8th, 2021, they released that book that we talked about, Victim F, which is amazing. It details their entire harrowing ordeal. It's a must read. Yeah, their story is not only a commentary on the criminal justice system, on victimization, but it's also a, a story on love and healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really has everything that, it, you know, one would really want to see in this. I just think it has all of the elements. And I love the way it was written, similar to the way I presented today's case, where you have Denise talking about what's going on with her and then Aaron and then back to Denise, back to Aaron. And then the third author who's coming in from an outside perspective. It's really just so well done. So without further ado, why don't we get into the interview? We're so fortunate to have these guests today. Let's turn it over to Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. Um, Thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview with us. Just so you guys know, we read your book this weekend. And when I say devoured, that would be putting it mildly. I've almost never read a book that quickly. I don't cry either. Just so you guys know, I cried twice. Um, I think that your book is seriously one of the most moving books that I've ever read in general. And as it pertains to the criminal justice system, I think it has the potential to have a huge impact in so many different ways. Well, thank you. That, thank that you. really means a lot. Were you guys writers before? Yeah, it was, it, it was a, a bit of a jump going from physical therapy centered mindset um, to a whole new craft. But our co-author did a great job in helping guide us through the writing process because it was it was new, <laughs> new experience. So uh, m- Many kudos to you. And I think that I don't know if you realize yet if the outpouring of people are going to reach out to you and thank you because you probably have helped so many people. And plus, I always think the best way to reform because Amy and I are actually criminologists and we think the best way to reform the system is to point out all the bad actors in it and call them out. You know, we know the story very well. One of the things, Denise, that you said in the book, when you realized someone was in the house and someone was, you know, coming for you guys, you talk about fight or flight. Mm -hmm. um, And that's something we hear all the time in our field. But I wonder, is freeze uh, is also a reaction people are saying, you know, now that people didn't know back in the day. So is do you think this is also a reaction that people can have? And did either of you experience that feeling at all? Oh yeah, the I mean initially when I my eyes opened and I realized that I wasn't dreaming and there was a you know men in the house um, surrounding us with what appeared to be guns, my initial reaction was to freeze and just kind of 
take it in. Um, I mean, I was in shock, but then at the same time, you know, as humans, we have the ability to then process the information so we can either initially react, but then for me, I'm, I was processing through all the different possibilities of what my options were. Uh, can I fight? Can I scream? Um, can I flee? And the way everything was set up, I realized I can't. And my best choice is to listen and pay attention and try to gather as much information as possible to help see what can um, potentially save our lives. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Aaron, I would just ask you the same question. Yeah. Um, when the voice woke us up, I was frozen. And it wasn't until he said, Aaron, you were lying face up, live face down. And I, I could feel myself almost like my body came back online, even though it's uh, cantonic. I could actually see and hear what was going on, but my body wasn't uh, unable to actually move. And then that snapped me out of it. Um, and just like Denise, the way they woke us up uh, and we're surrounded with, they have weapons. We quickly, even not saying it to each other, we quickly decide that the best course of action is to try to minimize any physical damage happening to us. As you were talking about, this was no ordinary home invasion. There was obviously a good amount of preparation with the guns, the lasers, the goggles, the audio recordings. I mean, I'm, I've almost never heard anything like this in, in our field. And while it was occurring, I know at some point there was a tape that was played and you realized that they knew your name. You know, what were your thoughts initially about these people and, and their approach to you? Well, I mean, he, he woke us up saying, uh, wake up, this is a robbery. You know, and we could tell that there was multiple people in the room and this was obviously well planned out. Um, and it was actually pretty quickly, like Aaron was saying, when he froze, they told us to, to turn over and... Aaron didn't. And they said Aaron's name. And so that was the first indication for me, my God, like they've, they know, you know, the homeowner's name. And as each moment's playing out, you know, you're wondering what this is. Cause it does, did seem like it's out of a movie, but you know, we're simple people, physical therapists working in a rehab facility. Uh, why would anyone target us for something like this? We don't have a lot of money, you know? So um, we're just hoping that that what they were saying was true, that it was just a robbery. You know, we could hear people downstairs when we were in the closet. Um, even when they said that they were going to give us a sedative, we thought, OK, well, maybe they're just going to knock us out. They'll clear out Aaron's belongings. That's it. But then, you know, we realized uh, eventually they told me that they would take me. And for me, I'm wondering, I'm like, does does Aaron have a lot of money? I don't think so. You know, and and two, they had said it was meant for his ex fiance as well. So um, that was another thing that was just like, well, why? I mean, all of this was really extreme and hard to process. You know, when we we're in the closet and they gave us the sedatives and we could hear people rummaging, like uh, I could hear someone going through my cabinet drawers and then a drill in the other side of my living area. And I think, I mean, I was still hoping that it was just going to be a robbery. Um, but when they separated us, took us, Denise out of the closet and had us in different rooms, it seemed to, I kind of knew in my gut, maybe it wasn't, but your the best thing you do is just keep your hope. Um, yeah. And then unfortunately, um, even after they said it was intended for my ex, um, they continued through on the uh, kidnapping. You talk a lot about your decision to call 911 and, and you, you stated it in the book, but why did you ultimately decide to do that? Because I know that must have been such a hard decision for you. Yeah, so the kidnappers had uh, set up my house as, as my home prison, as they said. So they had put a mirroring app on my my phone um, to see if I was 
my calls and text messages. Uh, and then he had put up, set up a camera to, to watch me in real time. However, one of the kidnappers made a mistake of telling me that the camera would stop making this noise once it was fully loaded. And that was before they had taken Denise. By the morning time, the camera was still making that noise. And I was able to determine that maybe the camera wasn't fully operating. Ultimate decision came down to the kidnapper said they're going to, I would drop the money off Tuesday night and they return Denise Wednesday morning. When I was thinking about that, it's like, they're just going to, if I come with the money, they can take me and kill us both. And to really trust people who do this type of planning, this may be just some sadistic game and a big power trip. Um, so I realized I need to call the authorities, which I end up, I'll, I call my brother because he's an FBI agent. And I figure if the kidnappers could see my phone calls, I could lie about why I'm talking to my brother. And he ultimately told me to call 911, which was the hardest decision in my life. And because I thought um, I would be safe because I'd be with law enforcement and I could be killing Denise with that call. Uh, and then unfortunately, uh, the police made everything worse. You both had incredible wherewithal. Like when you explain your thought processes and how you were able to like keep calm, it's, it's really incredible because I, I don't know that everyone and both of you separately had different processes for this is what I need to do. It's really, it's, it's quite incredible. Um, Aaron, uh, do you ever think about um, what would, do you ever think about what if you didn't make that 911 call? Yeah. Um, I think about it often. What would, how this would be different. Um, I, I mean, it's always uncertainty. It's, you know, we're most people don't realize like you're making impossible decision after impossible decision. So the Avenue that we went is like probably the only way, um, it would ever work out, but maybe if I call, if I didn't call nine one one, maybe they would have just taken the money. I know our reputations would have been destroyed by the police, um, but I don't know. It's you know, it's answering unknowns, um, and sometimes I just try to avoid thinking about that because um, that can drive you crazy. Yeah. You know, all the what ifs and whys, and you know, at some point you have to kind of accept what happened and, and make the best of what you have in the moment. I guess. Yeah, and that's why in the book I describe it like. I haven't skydived, but I imagine that's kind of feelings like at a certain point you just jump out the plane and you can't look back. Denise, uh, you had a lot that you were going through, but did you think or were you worried at all about what was happening or may have happened to Aaron? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's all I could think of based on everything that happened. I and even, what, you know, what was told to me um, in captivity that, you know, my captor was in charge of me and, and that aspect of this quote unquote mission. Um, and so I thought for sure someone I either was with Aaron or watching him closely. And of course, I wasn't given a lot of information on how, you know, what was going on in Aaron's end. But I knew that we both were in danger. And so it definitely was a factor in, in what I did or didn't do. You know, I was always thinking, well, if I do something that could lead to him getting hurt or killed, just trying to save myself. I mean, could I really live with that? And I mean, that's, you know, obviously it was by design to get people to comply. Um, so one thing when you're in that situation by yourself and you're making decisions based on your own life, but then when you're doing that for a loved one, you know, and they, they knew where Aaron's parents lived and told Aaron that they eventually knew where my family lived and were using that against me. Um, and yeah, they, they have an incredible amount of power over you because of that. I think one of the one of the sources of frustration for me was that initial reports were 
question why I waited so long to call the police, which I mean, I was tied up, I was drugged. And it's not an easy decision. People think I was like, their kidnappers put constraints and pressure on you to not go to authorities. I found it a little um, bewildering that people thought that because there was a delay, somehow I was involved. When that's how you extort money is you put threats on the loved one. And to Denise's point, it was threats to my family as well. And that ends up being such a immense amount of pressure because I don't know how I would live with myself if they attacked one, someone I cared about. It's, it's shocking to me still, but it must be shocking to both of you the way people who have never experienced anything like you do see fit to make judgments that they've never had to make themselves. Yeah, I think it's, it's the Mike Tyson quote, right? Like everyone has a plan until you, gets punched, until you get punched in the face. I mean, that's really like, you just really can't imagine. And like you're saying, kind of have no room to judge. And that's part of why we wrote the book and made sure it was from our points of view is that we're hoping that through our story, uh, people maybe gain a little empathy or or reduce their rush to judgment because you truly don't know anyone's story. uh, And you really don't know all the facts. And I, uh, especially now in the day of um, social media and these quick access to uh, opinions, one of the smartest things to do is I, I don't to say I don't know. I mean, obviously, no, we know the assailant knew a lot about you, um, but also about your ex, Aaron. I didn't read it and I didn't gather it, but were there ever any links established between um, your ex and the assailant? Uh, we haven't found out why um, they had targeted my my ex fiance, and unfortunately, you know the same investigators who said I killed Denise, and then were the same investigators who said we did a hoax, and we pleaded to get new, fresh eyes on it, and they kept them on on this case. So uh, it's difficult to trust their assessment of of the evidence. But more importantly, is like many victims, we won't get the answers. And for us, it's about moving forward, and those things that help us move forward is our love for each other and and our love for our daughter and our families and um, getting back to who we were as physical therapists and and those core pillars that that matter most in life. You know, I mean, unfortunately, we know there's other people out there that could cause harm, but we've, we continue to try to just have the police do their basic work and to help protect the public. But um, as far as moving forward as individuals, we just, yeah, we do what family and friends and those things are the most important. Yeah, I understand that you have to resign yourself in certain circumstances to just n- know that you're not going to know everything. How did uh, Denise? Sorry, how did they know your parents' address? Is that something you gave them? Yes, oh. and I well, when my captor was telling me about the drop off and and the the second day I was being held, he eventually told me that Aaron was went to the police and that media has covered it. Um, and he was saying that he couldn't release me in the Bay area because it was too hot, I think was the term he used. Um, and so he asked me where my family was that he, where he could release me that I could get to family closely. And I had my driver's license with my, my mom's address in my bag. And I didn't feel like I could lie to him. Um, and at that point too, I was just really hopeful that he, would release me close to family. And so we, we, I told him of a a cross street that, that I could, he could release me to where I could walk um, and get to either my mom or my dad's. Right. Let's uh, turn a little bit to the police um, conduct or misconduct. I would call it misconduct. And I think it's a lot more than that, just so you know. 
Denise, I first want to ask you, as a survivor of um, this type of assault that you underwent, how did you feel when you told the police your story and they didn't believe you? Yeah, I mean, I, oh, you know, every second of that two days in captivity, all I was thinking about was how can I live to see another moment? Will I be able to survive this? And then also making peace with the fact that it's probably going to be the end of my life. So the idea that I would actually live to see another day and then have to to present information so the police could believe me. I mean, that didn't even cross my mind. And so for one, I'm just in complete shock that I'm actually living and free. Um, two, I'm not even really sure if I am free because before I was released, I was told if you talk to the police, you can't say two things, anything about being in the military or anything about the sexual assaults. And so I was also just terrified that whatever I said was going to be somehow released publicly and they'd find out and they'd attack my family. Um, and then, you know, the first interaction I had with the Vallejo police, they said, you know, uh, basically we don't believe you and we'll offer you immunity. And uh, I mean, I just, I, I <laughs> don't have words. Um, and yeah, so the next step was we needed to hire a criminal defense attorney to, to protect me from going back into a different form of captivity in a jail cell. Why do you think the police assumed immediately that this was a hoax and that, that you guys weren't victims? Was this ineptitude? Was this laziness? Was it malicious? Why? I mean, I feel like it's a combination of everything. I, I mean, it's hard to even know. Well, I think one thing is that uh, you know, the public said like, oh, they didn't believe Denise. But uh, I think as you read the book, you'll see that they never believed me. And so they went 18 hours of I killed Denise. Just tell us you did it. If you it's an accident and if or if it was an accident, we're going to paint you as a cold calculated monster if you keep denying it. Uh, and that is actually a common interrogation strategy. What's extraordinary is the amount of time that they they interrogated me and the fact that they used my brother, who's an FBI agent, to try to get a confession out of me, those, but the actual, uh, method is commonly taught. And that's unfortunately for police, they believe confessions equal truth. And they don't necessarily register that when you psychologically torture people, they're going to they may say something just to make it stop from there. I don't know. The best case scenario for them is that they could, they had to say it was a hoax because they're getting pressure from the public and they need to get an answer to them. For some reason, they felt they needed to get the answer. I don't know exactly why they, they did it that quickly, but I think it's more cut, to take the pressure off of them. I mean, that's what the police chief said in his deposition was, we need to give the public an answer. And they said, they could just said, we're still investigating, or they could have just actually done an investigation. But yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. They Before I was even released, they believed that it was this gone girl hoax. And that was clear by the the types of questions that they were asking my mom. And even when she shared that I was molested as a child, um, that was somehow an excuse for, for me making something like this up because in this detective's experience, apparently that's what women do. They'll make up something like this um, to relive the thrill of the prior assault. You know, that was one of my questions then, Denise. My follow-up question would have been, do you think that um, either your treatment by the police was basically shaped by your gender? Well, there's a number of things that I would say yes, for one, that statement. And then we found out later, too, that the chief of police, before Kenny Park, their spokesperson, went out to say that it was a hoax on national news, 
he told him to go out and burn that bitch, uh, referring to me. So, I mean, there was a lot of anger, a lot of animosity, even when my defense attorney called and first spoke to the police to say, we need to get her to the hospital for a sexual assault exam. Um, we need to do that as soon as possible. And it was in the middle of the night and they said, no, you know, she can come here and talk to us first and then we'll determine if we're going to set this up. Um, but in the meantime, have her not shower, stay in the same clothes. She can't wash her hands or brush her teeth. And, you know, we'll talk to her and then we'll see if we'll set up the exam. I mean, it was just one thing after the other that it's it's clearly their viewpoint. When I read that, I felt sick to my stomach, just so you know, like it's it, I, I cannot believe it. You, you don't want to believe it. Uh, and I, I know so much about so Amy and I both do about so much that goes wrong in the system. And yet I was still shocked. Yeah. And that too, on top of that, uh, because I didn't fight my assailant because I, I mean, obviously I was drugged and held captive and didn't know where I was at. So in the, with the assaults, I didn't put up a fight. And so with my sexual assault exam, uh, later the FBI wrote that there was no signs of, quote, non-consensual sex, again, insinuating that, I guess, that it's not technically rape. And that was something that the public saw. And so even after uh, my captor and rapist was caught, people still went out and said, oh, like her, <laughs> I think one person wrote her genitals don't match her story or something. Yeah, it's just... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's it was baffling to me because I would think I would expect a little bit better from trained professionals, especially in the FBI. You know, it's like, aren't you the ones who are supposed to know better? And um, they kept proving not. Was there anyone who I mean, I, I know that the police I assume that the reason the public came to believe it was a hoax and, you know, this whole gone girl thing was because that's what the police put out there to them. Was there anyone in the media early on who believed you? Do you have any allies in the beginning other than your family and obviously your friends? I think, I think there were some reporters that questioned the police account. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't any articles to really support that. And that's, you know, decisions maybe by the editors or the newspaper as a whole. Uh, for some reason, no one felt to, like to really question why, you know, people with doctorate degrees work in a well-respected rehab center would do a thing like this. Um, you know, I think there was one, one report <laughs> that said, did, did Vallejo police mishandle this? But again, you know, that didn't really go anywhere. The, the more sensationalists and entertaining headline was the gone girl thing. And, and that's what most people ran with. And even after the kidnappers, when they sent email to try to uh, basically help clear our name and they in great detail talk about the crimes they committed that were verified, the police determined either I wrote them with the help of my brother or Denise's attorney wrote them. And so you look at, it was a tremendous amount of like hopelessness. It's like, how do you prove your innocence? And, then, and more importantly, we felt that these guys would strike again. Um, how do you protect the public when it's just written off in stone, you guys did a hoax and there's no change in the tide. And unfortunately, you know, one assailants attacked another family, uh, which is a huge tragedy and a trauma for them. But at least that department did their job. And, uh, and Detective Missy uh, Kerarusu was able to connect him to our crime. And so I don't think it's surprising that was one of her first cases as a detective or her first case as a detective. And, and I don't think it's surprising that she was a female police officer compared to this misogynistic male that we yeah, yeah. Like saw at Vallejo. 
And by the way, this everything you're describing, I'm sure you already know, is classic tunnel vision. Once they once they harped in on it, there's nothing, you know, it just had to be everything, every piece of evidence had to be interpreted that way. Why do you think your kidnappers wrote the police? That's a weird thing. I think part of it was that in some way they were remorseful. Um, you know, they deluded themselves into believing that this organization that they're a part of, they're not all that bad. I mean, throughout the captivity, it's like, I'm drugging you because this is protocol. You know, these are the guidelines that are set and that I have to follow. I mean, never mind the fact that, you know, it's like you created these guidelines, you know, you, you're, <laughs> you're not bound by them. You can change, you know, it's like, we have to hold you for 48 hours. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to rape me. You don't have to do all these things that you do have some power in this. And so I think in some ways they were being in their minds the hero, like, you know, what we did, yes, it's bad, but, but now we're going to right the wrong um, and be the heroes. Uh, and also I think another big part of it was that they, they wanted the world to see, Hey, no, this, we, we exist. Yes, we made mistakes, but, but look, you know, we fooled the police and we were getting away with it. Um, and then they detail all of the ways that they're very sophisticated. And, and, and even at one point in the email says, you know, I have to pause to, to note how fantastical this all sounds or something, <laughs> you know? So yeah, they, they thought highly of themselves. Odd, or it's not rare, or it's rare that kidnappers advertise or send letters out, but Vallejo's where a Zodiac killer had committed crimes and he sent many things to the Chronicle to, and a lot of it was a game for him to show how clever he was. So, and the Zodiac killer was still an active case. Actually, one of the detectives on our case was the, the detective for the Zodiac killer. So it's, it's uncommon, but it's not unheard of. The Zodiac there, I didn't even think about that, but you, when you talked about the the emails and multiple assailants, it seems to be that that had been something that was hard to convince others that they're multiple assailants. I thought you provided convincing evidence, but do you have any theories on these accomplices? Or I don't know. It, it's t- it's tough to say because we we've been um, deprived of any real information. And as far as I don't know if people in general know how FBI investigations go, there's two case agents, and then then there's a you know the technicians who can extract information through electronics or, I mean, there's a mountain of evidence, but it's a two case agents that determine what is important and what's not. And in our case, these two case agents are, uh, one has a major conflict of interest and the other one. So we, again, we, we just won't have answers. Um, and I think try and find that would be like a sticking point for our healing. So we just have to kind of move forward with it. That makes perfect sense. I completely understand. So let me just turn to after Denise was released, you discuss in the book about this period of separation, but for our audience and people who are listening, how long after your release, Denise, how long was it until you two were re- reunited? Yeah, so the home invasion happened, you know, in the early morning hours of Monday, um, and we didn't see each other till Saturday. Yeah, so I I had two days of questioning by the police and the FBI. Our attorneys were connected, um, and it was clear, you know, while you're 
being investigated and interrogated. You can't speak to each other. But by the end of it, you know, we weren't charged. And so my attorney said, you know, yes, you can talk to him. And so we finally were reunited. And that just felt like it was never going to happen. It was just like one thing after the other, like, I'm just never going to see him again. This is, and and that was also a real possibility. If we were going to be charged, we wouldn't be able to see each other or speak. So. Yeah, we, uh, I think, I mean, all of it was hardest time in my life, but that knowing that Denise was released and not being able to see her uh, was just uh, another level of torture. Um, I mean, I was just a shell of myself during that time. I mean, I could barely function. And yeah, and the threat of us being charged that we may not be able to speak until trial, which would have been years because we would have been able, we would have fought till trial is, I mean, that- It's unimaginable. Uh, yeah, it's unimaginable to think how how difficult that would be. I think for us, you know, we spent almost $140,000 on criminal defense attorneys and we weren't even charged with a crime. Uh, I think that tells you something that the system needs to change because not many people can afford that. And it's a real imbalance and injustice to to our society that you need to spend, um, you know, people's savings and stuff to just defend yourself when you're a victim. I could not agree with you more on that one. And when we get um, a little, just almost when we're towards the end, I actually want to discuss possible reforms with you and ideas on where you think the system should go. Uh, by the way, when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, please let these people see each other. You know, I was reading going, please, please make it stop. Like, let them see each other. So, you know, I think everyone who's reading it is going to feel exactly what you described and how hard that was. I was wondering, I know this is probably a lot, but if maybe you could describe a little bit about the the period, and you do in your book, but for people who may or may not get the book, um, can you describe a little bit about the time after you were released, like in between like your release and, and when they captured the actual assailant who assaulted you both? Um, you know, what was that like? What were some of your uh, struggles or, you know, what was going on during that period? I mean, we were... We were just completely lost, you know, again, being two days of captivity where I'm thinking I'm never going to live to see another day. All I focus on are the things that give my life meaning, like, you know, the people in my life. And for me, especially my my job, I love being a physical therapist. I worked hard to get a doctorate degree. um, And that was something I even asked my captor, you know, do you think I'll, I'll be released in time to return to work? And he was like, are you kidding me? What do you, you know, uh, I don't think you need to worry about that right now. Um, and so then having that taken away because of the lies, the police said, um, you know, and I mean, they had everything of ours. They had our cars, our, our licenses, our phones. I mean, we had to literally rebuild every piece of our life and our identity and we couldn't return to to Aaron's home. So we were basically just nomads going from Northern to Southern California, staying with family and friends and uh, people recognizing us. And so we don't really want to be out much. We don't know who to trust. Do you think that I'm a liar? You know, um, are you going to attack me? You know, and the thing that really grounded us was each other. I mean, I think a lot of our family members said at that time, like we couldn't not be touching each other. You know, because we, for one, didn't think we'd see each other ever again. And two, I, you know, I don't think anyone else in the world could have understood what we were going through internally. I mean, you both have PTSD, clearly. Was it hard to deal with that when the official story was that this was a hoax? How are you able to process this when, you know what I mean? Did that did that impact your recovery? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, 
when we have PTSD just from the home invasion and kidnapping and um, obviously the, the sexual assaults, um, I think, you know, in the world, there's people who want to cause other individuals harm, but your hope is that there's, you know, quote, good people out there to help protect you. And when I was raised, you know, when you're in trouble, go to the police and to have that whole framework um, just destroyed, it's a cosmic shift in your worldview. And that maybe is the longer trauma Mm -hmm. uh, because we know we're not the only ones this has happened to. Um, There's estimate there's over 200,000 innocent people in jail. We are grateful that we weren't arrested. We're grateful that a perpetrator, you know, the police did their work and caught a dangerous man that helped clear our names. There are people who are suffering for decades and their families are suffering. Their friends are suffering who will never get this type of uh, resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And initially too, I mean, my nightmares weren't just about being mm-hmm. attacked again. A lot of them were being attacked and I'm going to anyone to say, yeah. will you believe me? And desperately trying to get someone to believe me and old classmates nod and, police looking at me and I'm afraid I'm going to be attacked by them. So a lot of the PTSD initially was uh, the fear of the police. And again, cause our lives were just, just destroyed. I think my, my shock period lasted a little longer as I was just trying to collect the pieces of my life. And some of that PTSD didn't really hit until maybe nine months later when I, our lives were a little bit more settled and it scared me, but my therapist kind of explained it like, you know, that that terror was living inside of you, but you just weren't in a safe place to actually process it. And now you are. And that was helpful because it felt like, oh, my God, I'm getting worse. <laughs> I should should I be still going through this nine months later, a year later, many different phases of trying to figure out how to deal with the different layers of PTSD. Have either one of you ever gotten a sincere apology from law enforcement of anyone who persecuted you, who was involved? FBI Special Agent uh, Jason Walter, we saw him at the preliminary hearing for Mueller State Trial a couple of years ago. And he genuinely apologized. I do believe he was in a tough situation. He was the newest agent. He had his supervisors were you know, telling him this is a hoax, but he, he apologized to me. He apologized to Denise. He apologized to my mom. More importantly, he, he said this case will stick with him and he'll think about as he investigates other cases. And that is why we want to share this story. And we hope that law enforcement reads this uh, because there are, there are preventable measures that can happen. And again, people make mistakes, but they need to evaluate and learn from them uh, where instead of, doubling down, tripling down that there was impossible to solve this case when it was, it was, it didn't take Sherlock Holmes to solve this case. It just took basic police work. I agree. I re- I mean, as I read through it, I went, uh, why didn't they do X, Y, and Z before you even stated it? I was thinking these things and I, I agree. Wouldn't have taken Sherlock. That brings me to a good question though. Cause you were talking about preventable measures and, and uh, things that law enforcement can do. Can you guys discuss some of the reforms that you're 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 advocating for? I know that um, it's probably it, it relates to victim rights. I don't know if maybe you have interrogation or just some of the areas that you believe we need to real reform in the criminal justice system. Yeah, fortunately, fortunately, we're starting to see a little bit of shift towards um, eliminating police deceptive techniques in interrogation rooms. So Illinois just passed a law to ban those techniques, at least for juveniles. New York and Oregon are have similar laws. Uh, I would love to see that 
to all 50 states and not just juveniles, but population as a whole. Uh, there's people don't realize that the police can lie to you in the interrogation room with impunity and they will not that they can, they will lie to you and they will distort facts and they will make you feel like you've lost your mind. At one point I was questioning my own sanity. Uh, this creates a, it fosters tunnel vision and fosters confirmation bias. Uh, I think if we eliminate those and reduce interrogations to maximum four hours, those would be positive steps that would lead towards actually solving crimes and basing evidence, objective measures and evidence as instead of arrogance and intuition. And reducing false confessions. Um, were there any other areas? Sorry, I didn't know if you were advocating for anything in terms of victim rights as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's... It's crazy how many different times we were re-victimized, even after Mueller's caught, you know, through the whole the whole process for the state trial that's still pending. He was able to represent himself. He would get a defense attorney and then fire him and get one. And, and so for the preliminary hearing for the state trial, he was representing himself and was in a, a position of power to be able to cross-examine me and Aaron. And it was up to him to choose not to. But the whole time I'm sitting up there on the stand um, and the, the prosecutor's asking me questions, details, specific details about the rapes, what part of him touched what part of me um, in a public setting with him, his eyes on me. And that whole time, I'm not sure if he gets to ask me these same types of questions. Um, I mean, it was beyond <laughs> re-traumatizing, but at the same time, I felt like, I mean, this is what I have to do. The police aren't going to go on the stand for us. We have the responsibility. If he's going to be uh, held accountable for his crimes, we have to go through this in order to do that. Um, and I just realized how little rights victims have. Um, and that's even in a state of California that has um, an extensive bill of rights based on Marcy's law, you know, but and that's a, an organization that, that I think is going to be really helpful. They're trying to get amendments to each state's constitutions to include a bill of rights for victims. And from the outside looking in, you think it's so basic, like, of course, you know, the victim should have the right to know, you know, if, if their, their attacker is released from prison or, you know, but they're, because it's not stated in the constitution, it's not, the victims often aren't treated with that respect. Um, so I think that is a big step. Um, but then, you know, you have to make sure that it's not only written, but it's actually enforced, you know, so that there are a lot of um, great organizations that are making huge steps, but it's also, I think, a long process and we want to do whatever we can in any way to help um, support those organizations that are making change. Well, I'm sure your book is going to contribute in that way, but was it also therapeutic for you guys to write this book? Oh yeah. I mean, it was more than anything empowering. Um, even those difficult moments, having to sit with them and, and, and in a way relive them. Um, a lot of those moments, even with the assaults, you know, I was so detached and in shock to even I wasn't really able to process it. So it was really helpful to be able to be in a safe place and, and get that opportunity. And also it was very validating, you know, we're going through piece by piece, step by step. I'm like, Oh my God, this was awful. You know, things that I even forgot, like, Oh yeah, that happened. My God, no wonder it took. So it's, you know, it's affected our lives so much and, and it is a long process and it's been messy. You know, there's a lot of 
factors um, at play. So I think too, the, there's now actually a, a physical place to put our trauma. Like it's actually in a book and we can, it still affects us. It changed us for the rest of our lives, but there's a, there's a, a little separation. It's not as emotionally charged as it used to be, even though writing it was challenging. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the stories we tell ourselves is, is affects us the most. So we can take this trauma and, and continue to maybe view ourselves as victims, or we could shift it and help other people. And by taking something bad and, and hopefully making a positive impact, uh, that helps you rework what you're doing. And, um, and I know that the, the facts of our case are extraordinary, but the, our, the way we dealt with trauma and, and how that affected us is, is universal. And I would recommend anyone who's going through a difficult time just to try to find like even a little moment of giving back. It could even just be picking up litter off, off the ground because it makes you feel useful again at some level. And those little steps help build a direction and it's not a straight line, but it's, uh, uh, and it's messy as Denise said, but I think there is a path forward and that's what we're hoping our story mm-hmm. helps people gather some of that strength. I think it will for sure. Um, and it does sound like you guys have moved forward. Uh, is there such a thing as closure? And if so, do you, I mean, is there a thing, do you have it? I, I just wonder at the end. I mean, yes, in some ways, for example, me looking, you know, Matthew Muller in the eyes, um, at the federal sentencing and having him see me finally, that was for me, like, okay, I'm, I can move on from that. And in a way, writing the book is like, okay, I don't have to hold on to all of these little details. Um, the truth is out and I can be released from it a little bit. So in some ways, yes. And then other ways, it's not like it's gone. It, it's always a part of us and we have to learn how to live side by side with it. But but you can, you know, it's just, it takes time to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And I sometimes... Uh... I think there's a time like the idea of like recovery. I, I, I question the word recovery sometimes because you can't recovery means you're going back to how you were before and you can't after something this traumatic and you, you can't, if you lose a family member or you have a, a serious disease, you can't go back. Uh, what I look at is like, how can I, we evolve mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean it's, it's bad. It's different. And there's can be a lot of good that can come from that. So in that sense, like, don't worry so much about closure. There are those little moments of stepping stones that get you going forward, but it's more about evolving as a couple and individual and as a parent. And that gives us meaning. And that's more important. We'll do what we can to try to be a part of whatever change, um, you know, so, so we'll, we'll be, we'll be around. <laughs> I have no doubt. Sorry, Amy just wanted to ask something before we sign off. Yes, I'm, I'm not going to keep you because I know we're already over time and I really do appreciate your time. This has been amazing. Um, I, the only thing that you all didn't mention was how much your story is helping other victims, like the case of Sherry Papini um, in California. I'm sure you're aware of that case. And I first came across your story, Denise, when I was covering Sherry's case. And the reason why, you know, a lot of people were saying that was a hoax. And the only reason why the police backed off, I think, is because they saw what happened in Vallejo and how 
you know, so I, I just want to point out that besides the fact that this book is so powerful, and I really do believe it's going to make a change. And I know I speak for Megan and other academics when I say I will be using this book in my classroom, because it talks about, you know, victimization, violent crime, but being more so the victim of a system and the fact that you're both such survivors. And there's so many issues that are brought up, you know, what happened to you was so awful. And I'm, you know, I'm just so happy to see that so much good is coming from it. And I don't think you can realize how many lives it is really touching. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. That means the world. Thank you. Wow, that was such a powerful interview with Denise and Aaron, and it is so admirable what they have done with this tragedy, how they've turned this around into something positive. Yeah, and I really urge all of our listeners to get their book, read it, and spread the message. And Amy, I actually think I might um, have my students read this book as well, and especially in my classes on crime and punishment. This is a different take. And I think one that, you know, students and everyone really needs to be exposed to. I agree. And like the title suggests, I love how the book shows how they go from being victims to suspects to survivors. I think that's a real takeaway here, too, that, you know, they give real true meaning to the word survivor. And thanks again to all of our listeners. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Victim F, Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors, ABC News, NBC Bay Area, People, Mercury News, The Reporter, and the LA Times.